Welcome to Morning Ireland Extra with me, Lisa Pereira. Every day, our reporters gather material for stories that we then broadcast on our daily Morning Ireland radio programme. This podcast brings you deeper into those stories. Kian McCormack, at the start of the pandemic, you went out to find out how long it might take to develop a vaccine. You put out that report a few weeks ago. Now, you went back to those interviewees that you'd spoken to before to find out, has anything changed? So tell us, has the time frame changed in the last few weeks? Well, you know, when I first started looking at this, there was one person diagnosed in Ireland with COVID-19. And now weeks later, that figure is nearly 22,000 cases and 1,339 deaths. And in those seven weeks or so, Lisa, very short weeks, by and large, the thinking is amongst the experts that I talk to is that the race to find a vaccine will take between 12 and 18 months. But the starting point for everyone in this is January 10th. And that's when Chinese scientists released the genome of COVID-19. And the genome, it's the a complete set of DNA, including all of its genes, is the information that tells us how COVID-19 is built. But when that genome was released on January 10th, it really meant that vaccine research and testing moved at a phenomenal pace. And what we're seeing is vaccine research and development happening in months rather than years and at a very, very accelerated pace. And on top of that, of course, um, COVID-19 is a coronavirus. We've had two experiences of coronaviruses in recent years. SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome in early 2002 and MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome in 2012. So there has been a lot of research already into coronaviruses and that is helping the search for a vaccine for COVID-19. And the time frame at the moment is between 12 and 18 months, Lisa. So the first person you talked to about this was Jason Schwartz. He's Assistant Professor of Public Health and the History of Medicine at Yale University in Connecticut in the United States. Yeah, that's right. And his time frame is still between 12 and 18 months. But he says when we reach the point where a vaccine needs to be produced in very, very large quantities, there could be challenges. The, the 12 to 18 month forecast is still the best guess we get from our vaccine development, our vaccine science, our vaccine policy communities. We hear encouraging developments and encouraging sometimes perhaps overly optimistic forecast that might place a vaccine at the shorter end of that of that window. But it's still worth noting how unprecedented even a 12 to 18 month timetable would be when we think about how long it typically takes to develop a vaccine, the years and years typically involved. So there's a great deal of uncertainty. Any, any forecast is only a guess. But I think in terms of planning, that's the window that remains the most likely scenario for when we can really expect a vaccine to be available in large amounts around the world. The New York Times reported there are at least 254 therapies and 95 vaccines related to COVID-19 being explored. We know that the road to a vaccine, to any vaccine, 
is usually riddled with failures in terms of what we learn about what works and what doesn't work as research proceeds. That's to be expected. So to begin with as large a number of possibilities, as large a number of teams, as large a number of vaccine candidates as we have just increases the likelihood that as various uh, possibilities drop off in the months ahead, we will still find ourselves with one or more successful candidates. So I think the the more the better at this at this still early stage of the research and development work towards a vaccine. It's something we touched on the last time, but because of work into SARS and MERS, do we have a head start in terms of finding a vaccine? This is not the first time that we have encountered coronaviruses. So the SARS and MERS outbreaks over the last 15 or 20 years did give us some experience, some knowledge, some understanding about coronaviruses. It's knowledge that has been put to work. It's helped ensure that we're not quite flat-footed in terms of trying to think about how to design vaccines or treatments uh, for this particular coronavirus that we're encountering now. So we have some knowledge that is, is helping the work move forward, but there's still a lot that we don't know, a lot of work, a, a long road ahead in terms of this path to a, a potential COVID-19 vaccine in this months ahead, as we all hope. And if we do get to the point where there is a vaccine, will we be able to produce it fast enough and in big enough quantities? I think that's ultimately going to be the most uh, pressing and and, and challenging aspect of this work, as, as hard enough as the research and development work itself is that might get us there, that we'll be thinking about a scale of vaccine manufacturing, a scale of vaccine production, uh, potentially, that dwarfs any experience that we have as a, as a global community in mass producing and mass distributing a vaccine. I think there are really challenging logistical, financial um, structural issues that that will have to be confronted by by the global community working together this is more than any one country can take on to to make sure that there is the kind of capacity that will meet the need and demand for these vaccines that there is an, an equitable distribution of the vaccines it can't be every country for itself and that we ensure that the the access to this vaccine is not dictated by um, who has the most wealth, who has the most power, who has the most clout, but it really is deployed strategically to ensure that the vaccines go to where they can do the most good, particularly in those early stages where we know we won't have uh, the ability to produce enough vaccine to make uh, to meet demand. So I think those challenges, it's right to be thinking and talking about them now as is happening because they will become um, enormous if if and when those those fortunate moments come that we have a vaccine or vaccine oral that we're ready to mass produce and to mass distribute to the public. And of course, we haven't even talked about antivirals. That's right. In the meantime, we are seeing uh, an equally uh, aggressive uh, set of, of research activities related to antivirals, or related to treatments to try and reduce the, uh, the, the severity of the disease for those individuals that are infected. We're seeing that research program move forward with great speed, and we're seeing some encouraging signs uh, just this week with, with Redemzivir, uh, one of the antivirals that's that has shown some positive signals in some some testing regarding its ability to shorten 
the, the course of COVID infection and perhaps shorten its severity. So we can think a lot about using some of the therapeutic tools that are already available for other indications, other, other conditions, study them and see if they may have an effect in, in lessening the severity of, of the disease. So that, that treatment work goes forward. And I think in the, as a bridge to a potential vaccine, uh, thinking about these treatments is, is absolutely uh, and a very, very important set of work that we're seeing move forward. So that was Jason Schwartz, and he is Assistant Professor of Public Health at Yale University. And he's stressing the need to continue to work on treatments, even while the search for a vaccine goes on. Kian, you also spoke to a Scottish scientist. Her name is Dr. Kate Broderick. Her company, Innovio, which is based in San Diego, has already conducted human trials. Yeah, that's correct. And it's very much along the time frame that Kate Broderick outlined to me when I contacted her first back in March. And back then she expected the first batch of human trials to take part in April. And that has happened. And now she expects that her company will have one million doses of a vaccine by December this year. Here's Kate Broderick. We've made some significant milestones since we last spoke. Um, At the moment, we've actually completely fully enrolled our first clinical trial. So that means that we've now tested our vaccine on 40 volunteer subjects um, in, in a clinical trial setting. And we're now just waiting to get the data from those subjects um, to see how the vaccine looks like it's reacting in the human body. So you've really, you said to me that it would be April when you'd be doing those trials. Was there an influx of of human volunteers in terms of putting themselves forward in terms of the trials? Yeah, that was incredibly heartening to see. Um, the two sites that we used, one was in Philadelphia and one was in Kansas City, said that essentially their phones were ringing off the hook with people volunteering for the trials. And as such, we were able to get um, all the spots for the clinical trial filled within a remarkably short two-week period, which is really, really short for standard clinical trials. So it's been amazing um, to see how many people volunteered and we're just so, so thankful for their participation. What was your time frame back in March in terms of the potential of a vaccine being available? Um, the sort of year 18 months seemed um, pretty reasonable and, and still does, I think, when we put it in the context of having enough doses for large-scale um, mass vaccination campaigns. Um, I think that's still realistic time frame. However, I would say that You know, we um, internally have set ourselves the internal goal of having one million doses ready by December of this year. Um, And those doses would be used for further clinical testing, but specifically focusing on people like healthcare workers and potentially people with underlying um, healthcare conditions. So we'd be expanding our clinical trials to multiple hundreds, if not thousands of people at that point. What kind of data are you getting back? Are you 
having successors are too early to tell in terms of the clinical trials? We haven't got any of the data back yet. Um, all we can say is so far um, the treatments themselves have gone very well. We've um, had really good feedback on that. And we'll be waiting to get the actual analysis of the blood samples, which is, is really key. And those will be coming in the next few weeks um, into early early May. And we'll be looking in the sort of mid-summer type timeframe to hopefully go back to the FDA with the data that we get from the phase one trial and say, you know, are you comfortable with us moving on to a phase two trial, which is just a much, much bigger version um, of a trial that can potentially ask the question, does the vaccine protect you from getting the disease, the COVID-19 disease? There's a reality here as well that if you get to production, that that will take quite a while. But you say you can upsize quite dramatically to, to get all those vials of vaccines out if it does come to that. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, we've set ourselves the internal goal of a million by the end of this year. And that's very doable with our own current capacity. But in parallel to that, we're working with um, a number of large scale manufacturers who can do significantly more than that um, in the multiple millions of doses. Um, and, And so that's really when um, we start to think about vaccinating much larger numbers of the population. In terms of the clinical tests that have been ongoing, did you bypass the animal testing part of it? We did not. Um, We made the conscious decision that that was a vital part of our data package. And that was really vital for us to confirm a few different things. One, that our vaccine was safe, which we already felt very confident about. But I think it's important that you check those boxes. But also that we had the data to support that the vaccine was uh, what we call immunogenic. So by that, I mean, was raising the right kind of antibodies and T-cell responses that we believe would have the potential to protect against the disease. So we very much made the conscious choice to do all that animal testing so that we were really sure about the product we were then subsequently putting into humans. So that was Kate Broderick there. She is the Senior Vice President of Research and Development with that San Diego-based company Inovio. Kian, you spoke to an Irishman based in the United States who's heading up research into another vaccine. Yeah, Paul Dupre is Director for Vaccine Research at the University of Pittsburgh's School of Medicine. He says the pace of research has picked up so much that their trials have moved forward a couple of months. And the conversation I had with Paul Dupre, which you'll hear in a couple of seconds, is certainly worth listening to because he talks about their measles-based vaccine, antibody and antiviral treatments and many other interesting aspects of vaccine research. I think that what we discussed the last time was it would probably be 12 to 18 months. And looking at all of the landscape, I think we probably have moved a little bit closer to 12 months. So, for example, there are individuals talking about having product ready January 2021. And of course, that would be 12 months. But that's rather early. I think everything has moved forward. I think people are trying to compress as much as possible. So, for example, whenever we were considering our project the last time, uh, we talked 
we discussed that the phase one trials would probably happen November, December of 2020. We are expediting those and really hope to conduct those in Europe July or at the latest August. And just remind me what your project is. So what we're working on is we're working on a platform-based approach where we take a really good vaccine, which has been used for many years, and that's the measles vaccine, and we insert fragments of the SARS coronavirus genetic material into that and basically use the measles virus to display those parts of SARS coronavirus, which generally in the body are recognized and antibodies are formed and the antibodies then neutralize the real virus if you meet it in the uh, outside world. So we're hoping to begin the trials and the project that I'm associated with in Europe uh, July, which is much, much faster than we initially intended for sure. So that's where the whole process is being compressed uh, by looking at the timelines, looking at what can be expedited, running things which we would typically run in sequence, running them uh side by side and of course that demands a certain amount of gamble so what you have to do is instead of having your lead candidate you push forward with a number of candidates and of course you're going to have a lead candidate that will go into clinical trials but you have backups of backups of backups and normally you would discard those backups much earlier because that saves a lot of money but whenever time is the imperative you basically keep those things going a little bit longer. And that's a way of compressing the timelines. So instead of having maybe 10 horses starting a race, you suddenly have 80 horses. Everyone is in there. Everyone is racing for the finish line. Yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about it. And if you think about that in the general way of vaccines, where there's many, many different sorts of vaccines, then there are also many different sorts of candidate vaccines. So we, for example, could generate a number in the preclinical development phase. We just don't go forward with one. So maybe normally we would go through with a seven, then down to five, then down to three, then down to two, and then make the decision on the lead one. But instead of going through that sequential process of five, three, two, one, what we can do at the moment and what we are doing at the minute is moving forward with at least seven, and then it'll go from seven to one. You're now saying that things are moving at such a fast pace that it could be a year as opposed to 18 months when a vaccine is produced. Yeah, the partnerships are already developing. You're already seeing people partnering with companies like AstraZeneca. Uh, We have connections with the Serum Institute of India, a very interesting company which vaccinates over 60% of the world's children. So all of those conversations are in place to begin the process of generating a vaccine. I don't know whether or not I used this phrase when we chatted the last time, but what is really important to remember is it's not a vaccine until it's a product. And a vaccine is a product which is generated, made up of millions and millions of doses. Uh, So what's really important to remember at the moment is all of these vaccines are not actually vaccines, they're candidate vaccines, and they're all being pushed through that preclinical clinical process to get us to the point where we have a vaccine. And everyone's working hard. Everyone wants to 
move things forward as quickly as possible. But we also have to be absolutely certain that no corners are cut because, again, safety is paramount. But when you say vaccine, you mean the production line clinking vials coming off and going into boxes. Absolutely. That's really important. And that's a very important concept for the public to understand whenever we're thinking about that. A vaccine is something we're all familiar with, a flu vaccine, that you go to your primary care physician, they take a needle, they take the vaccine, they inject it into your arm. Sometimes it's sore, sometimes it's not so sore. That's a vaccine. What everyone has for COVID-19 at the moment are vaccine candidates. And that's really important to understand. And it's really important to help the general population understand that it takes time to get it to the point where we have those millions and millions of doses. And those are vaccines. So poliovirus vaccine is a vaccine which is in a vial. The measles MMR is a vaccine which is in a vial that gets given to children. There can be millions of these produced. Those are vaccines which are tried and tested and have stood the course of time. Vaccines, we've talked about them, but in the interim period, antivirals seem to be having some success. Is there an important role, or do the two of them run in parallel? Oh, actually, there are three parts of that jigsaw puzzle. There's antivirals, there are antibodies, and there are then vaccines. So we've concentrated a lot on the vaccines. Vaccines are the slow, slowest of the three Antivirals are probably the fastest of the three and antibodies sit somewhere in in between. Uh, And whenever we're thinking about antibodies, we mean antibodies generated in the laboratory. Antivirals are really hard to make, but there are a number of exciting candidates being tested at the minute. Uh, Remdesivir is one that you might have heard of. It's been through clinical trials in the United States and I think it has been uh, taking about three to four days off the, the time that individuals spend within the intensive care. So that's a really big achievement, and that just shows you that the proof of principle is that an antiviral can reduce the course of the disease. So that's a, an exciting achievement, and that's exactly what would happen. These drugs which would have been developed for other diseases, and remdesivir was generated for Ebola virus, can be repurposed. Why can they be repurposed and tried so quickly? Because they've been through the whole process of regulatory licensure. So you can take a drug which is used for one disease and repurpose it for something else. And that's really nice to see that that has been done. And I would say there are probably another number of those in the pipeline. And all of those things are good because remember when we're thinking about this virus, we're not just thinking about a one-hit approach. We want to have a a weaponry, we want to have an arsenal where there's just more than one way to defeat it. And it's great to see the antivirals being developed as well. The antibodies? Antibodies are in between, as I've said. So antibodies can be generated in the laboratory. So what are we trying to do whenever we're generating an antibody that could be injected into individuals? We're trying to mimic the natural process of what happens whenever the person meets the virus. So instead of them meeting the virus, if they are provided antibodies or if we inject antibodies against the virus into them, we have them ready if they meet the virus to be able to defeat it. Or if they're infected, 
reduce the infection. So the best way to think about antibodies, there's been a lot of discussion about convalescent serum. Convalescent is just a funny word, which is basically uh, uh, the recovering person, the person who has had the disease, it might have been acute, and then they recover. What happens in that person is they make antibodies, and a number of groups are trying to look at harvesting the antibodies from those people, combining them together, and then using those combined antibodies from a lot of different people as a therapeutic treatment for people who are in the hospital. So people who haven't been able to make their own antibodies because they're in the acute stage of the disease can be treated with antibodies from some people who have been recovered from the disease. And again, that's a, an approach that has been used often. So it's not as in innovative, it's not as uh, developmental as many of the different sorts of antibody, uh, sorry, as many of the different sorts of vaccine approaches that we're using. But it certainly is a, another tool in our uh, weaponry uh, against the virus. So that was Paul Dupre, and he's the Director for Vaccine Research at the University of Pittsburgh's School of Medicine. Now, Kian, everybody wants a vaccine. And the speedy push to get a vaccine sooner rather than later is throwing up some ethical dilemmas. One is taking a shortcut on conventional testing. Yeah, well, research ethics normally prohibits exposing human subjects to significant risk. But that risk is weighed up differently during desperate times like the desperate times we have now, the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, one example of a, an ethical dilemma like this is that, uh, you know, should promising COVID-19 treatments jump to human clinical trials as soon as possible and bypass the usual lengthy period of animal testing it's an ethical dilemma. Peter Singer, Professor of Bioethics in the University Centre for Human Values at Princeton University in the United States, has considered all of this. His opinion is that we shouldn't delay testing. Well, I am concerned about anything that will unnecessarily delay the development uh, and uh, testing and uh, eventually introduction of a vaccine for COVID-19 because uh, Many people are dying every day. The sooner we get a vaccine, the sooner we can start saving lives and also the sooner we can uh, ease off the lockdown and, and get back to normal. Uh, so I've been uh, concerned about how we might uh, test promising candidate vaccines uh, once we get those promising candidates. And normally this would be quite a lengthy process. Uh, it would... Uh, go through uh, some animal tests, but it would also then be tested on humans. Uh, but you would have to test a large number of humans because only a small number actually will get the virus in the normal course of their activities. Even if they're healthcare professionals, they may have a higher number getting the virus, but it will still be uh, quite a while before you get enough who get the virus to know whether they're protected by the vaccine as compared to a control group uh, who were not protected by the vaccine. Now, there is a way of shortcutting that uh, very significantly, and this would be to use uh, human beings, and I should stress human volunteers who are well-informed about what they're doing, who would be willing to first get the candidate vaccine and then be uh, 
exposed to the virus. So in other words, deliberately to be infected by the virus. And uh, that way we could find out very quickly whether the virus is protecting them or is not. So uh, many, you know, traditionally people think this would not be ethical, uh, an ethical way of testing. We, we don't use human volunteers in normal circumstances. But my point is that this is not a, a normal circumstance. There are a large number of lives at stake. And if some people are willing to volunteer for this, then I think we should honor them for that uh, altruism, for that commitment to helping to protect the public. And we should gratefully accept that offer. In terms of an ethical dilemma, you're weighing up the greater good against the risk in terms of the individual or the volunteer who puts themselves forward. Under normal circumstances, where would you fall in this argument? Well, if we had time to develop the vaccine, there were not a large number of cases and a large number of people dying, then I would say, you know, okay, let's not expose people to additional risk, even if they volunteer. Uh, we don't have to do that. We can uh, use it on and get groups in the population and uh, we will find out. It will take longer, but we will find out whether the vaccine is effective or not. Uh, but I think the fact that we're in a pandemic, uh, that there are so many lives being lost all the time, uh, does mean that getting the vaccine out there one day sooner saves uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands of lives. So I do think that it's justified to uh, accept the offer that volunteers are making in order to save those lives. Peter Sanger, Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University there. I also asked Paul Dupre and Jason Schwartz, both of whom we heard earlier, Lisa, for their ethical opinion and whether the race to find a vaccine could shortcut conventional standards. There's no point compromising on the standard scientific practice of how you carry out a clinical trial because those clinical trials have to be fit for purpose. So there's no point doing it fast and not having enough people in it because then you get to the end of the trial and you can't make a decision. So we can't compromise science if that compromises what we ultimately want, which is making a good decision. And the other thing that we can't compromise during that whole process is the safety of clinical trials. We have to be absolutely certain that what we, what we put into individuals is well checked out in terms of its sterility, uh, what's in it, how it was produced, all of those things which are really important before we put any material into a volunteer who has uh, who has volunteered to be part of a clinical trial. <clears throat> and I think it's rather uh, provocative, thought-provoking is probably a better term, uh, because you really have a bioethicist there who is looking at the greater good argument. Uh, but as Peter says, and I mean, Peter's a wonderful ethicist, uh, when it comes to uh, factual beliefs about the pa pandemic, they as ethicists defer to the scientific expert opinion. And the challenge with deferring to the scientific expert opinion and then making that argument that we can fully inform volunteers is this is a virus that we've really only been exposed to in the last three months. So we're learning a lot of information about that virus. 
and there is a difference in some ways between learning as you go along, presenting the case that someone should volunteer, asking are they fully informed whenever we only really have a small amount of the information. So, for example, one of the things that we have discussed and, and a lot of the people in the community are discussing at the moment is enhanced disease. Enhanced disease can be seen and has been seen with some vaccines in the past. And remember, this is something we absolutely need to avoid. We need to really be all over that. So we want to be absolutely certain that we don't do something for the greater good, which is highly detrimental for that individual. And that's where you look back to the Peter's uh, discussions and Peter's thoughts in that article where it becomes an ethical issue. And it's not just individuals, it's not just groups of communities, it's, it, it's, it's the community as a whole, not just within Ireland, not just within the rest of Europe, but within the world. And those are really complicated issues. So that article's great, it's really thought-provoking. And I think it's great for ethicists to provoke scientists and scientists to provide data and, and work with it in that way as a partnership. But those are very, very hard questions to answer. And they're certainly very hard questions to answer in the middle of a pandemic. Because remember, every person still is an individual. And that individual may volunteer and may do something in good faith. And the scientists and the clinical trials expert may provide as much of the information as possible but if that was your kid your brother your aunt or whoever who had volunteered for a clinical trial and something happened in the middle of a pandemic then there's all of those things to be contemplated as well so it's a super complicated non-linear non-black and white decision there's understandably such great urgency involved in the work toward a potential vaccine, and that's leading to the enthusiasm, the interest, the incredible investment in trying to push this work forward. But we have to balance that urgency, that desire for speed with the need to proceed thoughtfully, carefully, protecting the interest of the volunteers, the human volunteers that will participate in the research that give us the information that we need. So it's a balancing act between speed and caution, speed and safety that needs to be thought about at each step of the process. Right now, we're moving forward, as you know, with some human trial vaccines that haven't gone through that traditional animal testing. These trials are small. Uh, there's a, a very low likelihood that there would be risks to the research subjects involved, but it's something that needs to be monitored throughout. We simply can't compromise uh, the protection of our research volunteers, even given the urgency to get this vaccine developed as quickly as possible. And we need to be vigilant about that in the in the months ahead. But it is a case of right weighing up the risk of the human subjects or the volunteers versus the greater good. To an extent it is, and we need to make sure that our human volunteers are, at any stage of this research process, are very well informed about the risks and benefits 
that they may face as part of their participation. That's the the absolute requirement for any type of human subject research to, to ensure that they understand uh, what their participation entails. And then as we move forward, we're going to have that other balancing act to figure out how much evidence we are comfortable with before we proceed to larger trials with more research volunteers and eventually proceed to the to the distribution, we hope, of an approved vaccine. So it's a balancing act between how much evidence, how much knowledge we have, and, and how quickly we're comfortable proceeding that we rely on not just ethicists, but we rely on our regulators, our scientific communities, our research oversight bodies around the world to, to monitor and to be attuned to that, that balancing act as we move forward and as we learn more about, about the science, as we learn more about the vaccines that are being developed. So you just heard there Jason Schwartz from Yale University and before him Paul Dupre from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Kian, thanks for bringing us that report, the extended version. You may have heard the earlier, shorter version on our programme, Morning Ireland, but you obviously had a lot more material and thank you very much for bringing that to us, Kian McCormick. Thank you. You've been listening to Morning Ireland Extra. It's a podcast where we go deeper into some of the stories you may have heard on our daily radio program. You can find that program, Morning Ireland, on RTE Radio 1, on the RTE Radio Player, and on the RTE News Now app. I'm Lisa Pereira. Thanks for listening. <laughs>